When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Terrio Media. In today's show, I'm focused on two different sources of deeply discounted off-market real estate that you might have never considered. You might not even have heard of them. And so I'm going to begin by interviewing the CEO of a new real estate marketplace that connects homeowners looking to sell their house as is to the largest network of real estate investors with their promise to deliver peace of mind and support through the process. And then I chat with a very good friend of mine, Mr. Jamel Gibbs, to discuss how to find and buy a relatively and surprisingly untapped resource for discounted real estate. And I'm talking about condemned houses. But before we begin, Merry Christmas to you and your family. To celebrate for this week, Epic is running a Christmas sale. It's the Christmas deal. 82% off Epic Invest Ed. It's our Epic Training Vault. Now, it's all of our contracts, all of our marketing resources, all of the training with creative financing, all that good stuff. And we're including something in this sale that we've never offered before. And that's 100% financing for your fix and flip projects in 2022. That's funding the purchase of the property and funding the rehab. And so if you like the way that that sounds and you want to get all the details, go to epicchristmasgift.com. Epicchristmasgift.com. Oh, and if you don't celebrate Christmas, well, I wish you a Merry Christmas anyway. I can't see anything wrong with wishing each other well, regardless of the occasion. When my Jewish friends wish me a happy Hanukkah, I'm grateful to be included. And I like to joke around about dumb stuff quite a bit. And, you know, just on a serious note, I think it's time we start focusing on the good instead of finding reasons to focus on our differences. Any occasion for people to wish each other well is a good occasion. So I wish you and yours well during this season and may God continue to bless us all. You ready? Let's go. Welcome to the all new Epic Real Estate Investing Show, the longest running real estate investing podcast on the interwebs. Your source for housing market updates, creative investing strategies, and everything else you need to retire early. Some audio may be pulled from our weekly videos and may require visual support. To get the full premium experience, check out Epic Real Estate's YouTube channel, epicrei.tv. If you want to make money in real estate, sit tight and stay tuned. If you want to go far, share this with a friend. If you want to go fast, go to reiace.com. Here's Matt. Alrighty, my guest today started his company Sunday to help homeowners get a better outcome when selling off market. And with a career at the intersection of technology and residential real estate, he's seen firsthand the opportunity to create a new type of business that wins by doing the right thing for the seller. He graduated with honors from Stanford with a BA in economics, BA in Spanish, and an MA in Latin American studies with a focus in economic policy. He wrote his honors thesis on the long-term impact of the subprime lending crisis on the Latino community, lives in San Francisco with his wife, two sons, and their two dogs. So please, without further ado, help me welcome to the show, Mr. Josh Stetch. Josh, welcome to Epic Real Estate Investing. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me, and uh, I'm really excited. Yeah, me too. 
interesting that you went to Stanford because my best buddy went to Stanford and you remarkably look a whole lot like him. <laughs> and I even thought that before I even read that you went to Stanford and I was like, oh, wow, must be in the water. <laughs> <laughs> must be. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, I was, I was really fortunate. I grew up in Southern California, just, you know, sort of a uh, normal middle-class family, public school, 3,500 kids. And I was just really fortunate to have a family that supported me and cared a lot about education. And uh, I was really lucky to have the Stanford platform. Fantastic. Well, congrats to that and congrats to your, your newest venture. Thank you. And uh, I want to learn all about it as well as your background. But I was just curious, where does the focus on the Latino community come from and, and what did you learn while writing your thesis? Yeah. So I grew up in Southern California, as I mentioned, San Diego specifically. And um, there's just a, you know, quite an influence from the Latino community in the area. Um, mm-hmm. And I grew up speaking a lot of Spanish with friends and mm-hmm. And got really interested in it. And, you know, I was one of the few kids in the Spanish class that wasn't just taking it for credit. I actually, you know, cared. And right. um, man, every chance I had, a, you know, an opportunity, I would would speak it and learn it. And and so when I got to school, uh, university at Stanford, I knew I wanted to study something that you know could help me practically in business, but also something that I was really passionate about. So I double majored, as you mentioned, in economics and Spanish. I studied in Latin America. I worked in Latin America. Um, so. You know, it's just always, I think it was just because of where I grew up and the people I was around. I really fell in love with the culture, you know, the mm-hmm. dancing and the singing and the just, you know, hugging and all that stuff. I just sure. loved it. So, so that was, uh, that was it. And then when I had a chance to do my honors thesis, I actually reflected on um, the first job I ever had uh, was in a mortgage cold calling center, believe it or not, <laughs> in 2004. Mm-hmm. And most of my friends were getting jobs during high school at, you know, the local nursing home or In-N-Out Burger. And I just said, give me a commission only sales job and give me some upside and let's go. And and so I got into mortgages and it turns out because I spoke Spanish, a lot of the families I helped were of Latino background. So long story short, to answer your question, when I wrote my thesis, um, I learned a lot because I interviewed a lot of the customers I had helped get mortgages. And unfortunately, a lot of them had hit tough times with these adjustable rates, the negative amortization products that were sort of popular back then. And I got to interview them just to say, hey, you know, this was your kind of shot at the American dream um, as an immigrant with, you know, money and um, you know, what was your experience like and what did you, so, uh, what did I learn? I mean, I learned that there's a real impact, you know, that the kind of mortgage and financial products that, that we all conceive of and design and that ultimately the regulators allow to be sold and distributed have a real freaking impact on people and their, their lives and their families. And, you know, that was a big learning moment for me because there was a lot of stuff out there, a lot of programs that felt like the right opportunity for people, but really ended up underserving them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What do you think they broke down? Uh, sorry, the products? Yeah, I mean, like the, you know, providing the opportunities. I, I was a real estate agent during that period of time. And I was helping a lot of being a newer agent at the time. I was helping a lot of first time home buyers. And it was really easy for them to get loans, right? And so I, I saw it as, in hindsight, when everyone called it predatory lending and it was such as this, this had this negative stigma wrapped around it. But at the time, I mean, I was helping people that really wanted a house and they really wanted a shot at what you just kind of posed there, the American dream. And, totally. you know, and it just didn't work out. And I, I don't know what, what you saw, what didn't work out. You're right. I mean, a lot of people took advantage during that time of the ability to finally realize their dream of homeownership and they made it work. You know, I think mm-hmm. there was just some people who, unfortunately, because of how loose credit score standards got, how loose debt to income ratio standards got. And really how complicated, frankly, the financial products became, right? It was no longer just a 30 or a 15 year fix. It was like negative amortization. What is that? You know, 228 adjustable. What, what does adjusting mean? And wait, it can only adjust this much in year one, this much in year two. Well, what does that really mean for my payment? And 
you know, am I going to, are my wages, my, are my wages going to go up, you know, sort of commensurate with the increases in rate? I think it became hard for people to understand what they were signing up for. And yet one of the first times that stated income, low doc, no doc sort of allowed them to get into the game. So I think it was, like you said, a lot of people that deserve to be helped that were financially had the wherewithal to be helped were and succeeded. It's just that a lot of things, I think a lot of people that they got in over their head, either because they didn't understand what was going on or because honestly, the design of the products allowed people to get credit that probably shouldn't, they weren't ready. You know? Right. Right. Well, here we are fast forward to uh 2000. What are we in 21 now? It's hard to keep track with uh, seems like everything's in. What <laughs> was COVID? Was that 19 or 20? Yeah, <laughs> it's know. so hard it's to remember. Like, it's like the lost year, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, here we are today. You started this new venture Sunday, but uh, what happened in between there and what inspired you to start this? Yeah. Oh, geez. Well, a lot in between, I guess. I, uh, I came out of Stanford grad school and uh, moved to Las Vegas of all places. And I started fixing and flipping houses with my dad. So uh, he had retired from a corporate America job. He'd been doing a lot of pre-construction investing before 2008. Uh, and then, you know, we kind of realized that there was quite an opportunity to start buying and renovating homes and either reselling them or holding them in a portfolio. It was like the second time in the history of the United States, you could buy a home for less than you could build it. So that just signaled to me quite an investment opportunity. So, um, so we moved out to, I moved out to Vegas and I just started living home to home, you know, buying homes mm-hmm. from the auction, um, renovating them, getting them on the market, turning them and moving on. And it started off as just some, some money that I had, some family money. And then I was fortunate to reach out to some friends and contacts and start a little fund. One thing led to another. I ended up doing over 200 flips in two and a half years. And what I realized then was, a lot of my competitors with capital constraints. You know, this is now 2011 mm-hmm. and um, and 2010, 2011. And although opportunity was 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 there, you know, through some short sales and bank product, uh, capital was really tough. So I turned my sights to being a lender. So I became kind of a hard money lender, uh, equity partnerships, debt partnerships. Did that for about three years. Did over 1,200 debt and equity deals with other people that were the principals in the deal. Learned a ton about the credit side of the business. You know, no longer was it about managing contractors and reselling homes. It was, you know, more about loan to values, loan to costs, you know, and borrower sort of credit worthiness. So um, that was a lot of fun. And then I was given the opportunity to uh, to start along with a few friends my first technology company, which was called Lending Home. And Lending Home is, um, you know, it was a, a sort of a mortgage technology play, but we started with a very narrow product, which was what I'd been doing, this 12-month you know, fix and flip loan. And you know, we, we started there thinking that would kind of be our first stepping stone to a, a broader play and realized, man, that was a huge market, very fragmented. There really wasn't a national player at the time. So uh, we became the largest in the industry over the next four and a half years while I was there. And we had significant double-digit percent national market share. We were in all states. I'd, we'd grown from the four of us to over 400 people. We raised hundreds of millions of venture capital. It was just an awesome, awesome, awesome experience. And, um, but it was really towards sort of the, as I was rounding the corner and almost hitting year five at Lending Home, um, I realized that the, really what I believe to, to be the bigger opportunity. And I call it kind of my 10-year aha or 10-year epiphany because it took me that long to realize that what was really needed in the industry was a managed marketplace. Uh, that sat between off-market sellers that needed what a property investor could offer, speed, certainty, reliability, quiet sale, all the things that we all understand. 
and connecting them to those investors and giving them a fair process, you know, not talking to one or two, but actually, you know, being able to get them offers from dozens so that they get a good deal, the investor gets a good deal, and you know, everybody's happy. And so, um, so that was the reason that I had that insight. I'll give a lot of credit to my co-founder, Andrew Swain. So Andrew Swain was CFO at Lending at the time, but before that, he was CFO at Airbnb. And he really understood the power of a managed marketplace. And, uh, you know, because Airbnb, of course, is exactly that, connecting vacation rental homeowners with tenants. And, um, and he, when, as I started describing more and more what I wanted to do as my next chapter after Lending Home, he said, dude, you got to be a managed marketplace. You got to get in the middle, charge a flat fee, make everything simple and easy to understand, create fair competition. And, you know, so that's what we did. So we started Sunday about three years ago. Um, and in typical kind of technology fashion, we raised venture capital. Um, we've raised about 140 million to date in the last three years. We have a staff of hundreds of people across the country. And what we do is we market to homeowners and uh, we go through the process of packaging their home as an investment. So we do inspection reports, 3D walkthroughs, uh, floor plans, you know, pictures, all the rest, put it on a marketplace. And then we have thousands of investors now, big and small, who bid on those properties or make offers. And at the end of the kind of like a five-day auction process, we review all the offers with a homeowner and then they choose one and, and that's that. So um, we're kind of a, a market, we're a, a matchmaking service between off-market sellers and property investors. Mm-hmm. Got it. Well, my next question was to ask you, what's the elevator pitch for Sunday? So maybe, <laughs> yeah. maybe, that, was, maybe that was it right there. Yeah. It's a marketplace, you know, similar to say like a Facebook marketplace, right? It is. It is. Yeah. And I think the, the value props on both sides are strong. I mean, on the one side, it's get the benefit of competition without some of the drawbacks of showings, right? And some of the confusion that happens in this space because it's largely unregulated, right? The, there's a lot of confusion when a seller maybe is able to get two or three offers on their own by calling a few people on postcards, right? What happens is they get contracts and offers that are highly different. You might get two offers for 400,000. Somebody's paying all your closing costs. Somebody's paying none. Somebody's got 30-day contingency. Somebody's got none, right? Somebody's paying $10,000 earnest money. Somebody's paying 500. Like, so what we do at Sunday is we said, look, Mr. and Mrs. Seller, we can give you the competition that you don't currently get by just calling a few while preserving um, a lot of the, a lot of what you want, which is certainty, speed, cash offers, non-contingent. And then what we'll also do is standardize everything in between. So every offer has to conform to all of these terms, like the same earnest money deposit, no contingencies, you know, that sort of thing. The final thing that we do for sellers is we do a $10,000 cash advance because anybody who's been in this business and done even a handful of deals knows that it's not over for the seller when they sign a contract, right? Life is still dealing them a tough hand. So for those next 20, 30, 40 days, whatever happens to be until they get the proceeds from the sale, they got problems. And so we give them a cash advance. That's the seller prop. On the, the buyer side, it's pretty simple. It's look, it's, you know, what are property investors really good at? It's underwriting properties, identifying the value add opportunities, managing the construction, managing the resale and negotiation. It is not typically doing the marketing to find deals. And so, you know, we say, let us do that. Let us bring you vetted inventory. And then you're able to then get your money to work much more quickly because the cardinal sin of investing, right, is having money in the bank paying you nothing. So we try to be a consistent, steady flow of inventory that's vetted. You know, we've done a lot of work on it, a lot of inspections, things like that. Okay. So let's see. I'm curious. So who is the ideal customer then? Is it the seller or is it the buyer? 
you know, I think in traditional fashion, um, you know, a marketplace really wouldn't identify one or the other and say, in order to be a healthy ecosystem, you know, Airbnb, if it only served its vacation rental owners, uh, probably wouldn't have tenants for very long, you know, and if it, right. and if it did everything that was in the best interest of the tenant, you know, your landlords would find somewhere else to go to rent those properties. So I think we are in the, the business of balancing those two things. Um, and, you know, the reality between buyer and seller in any industry is that there's often conflicting incentives or conflicting desires and outcomes. And so, you know, we try to manage it in a way that's, uh, gets the best outcome for both parties. Cause for us, it would be a bad outcome if people were consistently overpaying for homes, right? Cause then they're not going to come back if they're getting bad deals. But at the same time, it would be a bad outcome if a seller was consistently getting, you know, only a handful of offers at really low prices. So we're having to balance both, I think is the answer. Mm-hmm. So you being a, a former real estate investor, I'm and you kind of mentioned postcards. I'm sure you've done all the marketing in the past direct to sellers, right? And then you know what it's on that side. And that's primarily the people that are listening to you right now as well. And then now you've made this switch to where it almost seems like you're, you know, creating a lot more equity in the transaction and being a little bit more fair. I don't know, I'm going to use that quote unquote fair because sure, that's, sure. that's certainly debatable and subjective for sellers. What inspired you to make that transition to go to the other side, so to speak? Well, um, gosh, and I would even say it's, I don't like to look at it as sort of the other side. I I think, I guess I realized that while I'd been supporting property investors for a long time with capital, like Mm -hmm. we had introduced higher loan to value programs, better construction draw processes, longer term loans, cheaper capital. I mean, we, you know, myself and the founders of Lending Home, like we, we pioneered a lot of a lot, probably a lot of the listeners are using products that either are lending home products that are innovative or that others are. I'm, I'm an affiliate for lending home. So I send people there all the time. So yeah, I mean, fantastic organization. Yeah. So I've always, you know, had that small business owner, family run company. I mean, look, I, that's where I started, right? It was with my dad fixing and flipping. So I have a, they're the near and dear place in my heart for those people. Uh, so I didn't switch sides as much as I just decided, you know what, there's a better way for both sides. I think that the thing that caused me to realize that I needed to do this was I was speaking with, a colleague of mine, I'll even, uh, I'll even say they were a friend, um, and they are, and they were in the business of you know wholesaling, which of course a lot of us have done in the past, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners do today. And I just said, hey, how's business? And he said, it's great. You know, I just did this deal. Of course, we all we're all deal junkies. So he goes right into the deal, and he says, got it under contract for a hundred. Couple of days later, found a buyer for one ninety. Closed in ten days. Made ninety grand. Like you know, I'm pumped. And I just, I'd heard those stories before. Something about that, right? I mean, you know, who knows why things happen the way they do. Just, I just stopped and I said, you know, Hey, do you think you deserve $90,000 for, for that? And of course he goes into, well, I only do a few a year and I need to maintain my lifestyle. And like, I have, you know, all these nice things. And I said, no, 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 I, I, I totally understand why that was a good outcome for you, but did you deserve it? And he was having a hard time answering that. So then I just switched gears and said, well, how about the seller? Tell me about that. Seller was a, you know, a widow. And she was looking to move on to a nursing home and, you know, again, a very common avatar for our business. And I said, do you think maybe she would have benefited from 110 or 120 or $130,000 instead of hundred? Well, yeah, probably, but I would have made less. And I just said, well, do you think there was a more fair outcome? And long story short is I got him to agree that, yeah, you know what? I probably didn't deserve that. And that was, I think the moment for me where I just said, you know, it's not that that's not a valuable service. It's that it needs to be properly priced. And so what we do is we have a flat fee. You know, we, we don't chart, we don't make 90 and 10,000 and sometimes make 5,000. We, we just say it's transparent. It's a flat fee. 
And by the way, like mm -hmm. it's better for everybody. So I think that was the, that was the moment if I had to pick one where I just said, I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to get sellers better outcomes while also preserving the critical role that property investors play in the housing market, which is renovating homes and, you know, turning dilapidated homes into like new, because we all know that new home builders are not delivering enough inventory for demand. So we have an important role as investors. I just think there's a more fair way to split the economics. Uh, you know, certainly there, there's always a, an anecdotal story to, to support that side, right? And there's plenty of them. And I, and I even noticed on your website, you use the word predatory investing. And I know they're out there. But to push back or play the other side of it, you know, when you're going out and you're looking at properties, you know, that, that's a huge responsibility that you're going to be taking on. And, you know, what you don't want to do is, you know, that $100,000, just to use that example, your buddy's example, you know, what if, you know, he took ownership and all of a sudden found out, you know, the foundation needed to be redone and the roof needed to be redone. And, you know, there's a whole lot of liability and risk that we take on as well. And we just never know how it's going to pan out. And we love those home runs. We love those $90,000 days, right? Because I've been burned so many times when I thought I got a great deal. I didn't get burned, but I just like, I made a bad decision on my part. Yep. And so like, it goes both ways. That's all I'm saying. It does. It No, it, it certainly does. And I think it's the, there's certainly the, like, I think the, the types of players that we can all agree just, you know, shouldn't be in the game. The ones that actually intentionally, right, use, use tactics like renegotiating at the last minute, fabricating inspection reports, right? Like agreeing to prices they know they, ne they can never pay while the seller increases their commitment and gets closer to close and then changes the, th those people just, there's no room for them. And unfortunately you go to a lot of these, you know, real estate education events and they teach you how to do these things. So mm -hmm. those educators, they should be out of business and so should the people that employ those tactics. Then there's all of us who are honest, we work hard and we deserve to make a very good return for our efforts. And, and then to your point, there's the volatility in the business. And one thing I think we can help with and we're trying to and we, we can get better is delivering a package of information that hopefully reduces that volatility of outcome so that people can get more comfortable saying, all right, well, maybe I make a little less on each deal, but it's more consistently the amount that I thought rather than this 90 or this 10 or this 50. But that's back to the point of like, who's our customer? That's our responsibility to the investor side is how do we get you more predictable outcomes? And that's a hard job. Perfect. Okay, so when a seller decides that they're going to use your service, okay, that's, that's what be the second question. The first question is, how are you promoting yourself to sellers? How are you positioning yourself to find your inventory? Yeah, well, so let's see here. The, the equation I think of there is, it's first is what's your product offering? So, you know, are you a cash buyer? Are you a marketplace? And that's one of our biggest challenges is that we have to position as a slightly different thing, uh, which is, I think most sellers in this circumstance sort of have gotten conditioned to know that I call somebody who can give me a cash offer. What's this thing that can give me dozens of cash offers? Like, so first is product positioning and it's a challenge for us for sure because it's different. Second is branding, you know, and we chose Sunday very intentionally. We didn't want it to sound like a, you know, big, scary property investor brand. We just wanted it to be a, like an Amazon or a Google or, you know, sure. Um, and so we were really excited about that name and you know, Sunday, the day of the week, of course, uh, which were spelled differently, but it's a day of rest. It's a day. It's a real estate day. It's a, it's just, anyway, we were really pumped about the name. You are spelled um, like the dessert though, just for everyone listening. Yes. Sunday.com with an E, Sunday with an E. Um, so, so then it starts, so then it's brand, and then it's of course targeting. And um, I think that's where we are fortunate to have a, quite a leg up on, you know, let's just say myself, if I go back when I was trying to do this myself, you know, we have access to the credit bureaus. We have access to partnerships with firms that have some of the best consumer data in terms of 
you know, reported credit drops, you know, open trade lines, closed trade lines, 30 day defaults, notice of, you know, notice of sales, like, but real time, like much more real time than a lot of the, the kind of service providers out there in the real estate category today. So we've gone and gotten relationships directly. Actually, one of our largest investors is First American Title from an equity standpoint. And they give us, they're the largest purveyor of publicly trade, public information on real estate in the country. We get all of that as fast as, faster than anybody really. So Mm -hmm. targeting is really like, we're really good at that. Then from a channel standpoint, it's a lot of what we all use, direct mail, Facebook, search engine, but we have a budget that allows us to do outdoor TV, radio. And then um, you may have seen in our latest announcement on our $80 million fundraise was we have a lot of celebrities that believe in what we're doing. You know, Will Smith, Clay Thompson, Shaquille O'Neal. And, you know, I think when you start getting a brand that's elevated, that says, you have people like that that say, this is the place to go. You can trust them. You start kind of pulling forward what, what, what usually becomes a decade-long brand building exercise. You can pull it forward by you know, bl- borrowing the credibility of these, these celebrities. So that's another thing that we're, we're, we're starting to do. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of how we think about att- attracting off-market sellers. Because look, b- real estate is a high brand affinity category, meaning you got to have a lot of trust in who you're doing business with. And you got everybody on the call knows that we're typically in the business of helping people, not selling real estate or buying real estate or flipping real estate. We're trying to help people. And that, that's, a, that's a trust business. You know? mm-hmm. Interesting. There's a, I mean, you're here in Vegas. Is that where you live? No, uh, I was in San Francisco oh. for a long time. And then uh, the pandemic caused me to relocate to my hometown of San Diego. So I'm oh, in San Diego. Okay. All right. Yeah. I thought you'd mentioned Vegas earlier. So I thought you were here. I, wa- I was there for um, the better part of five years. Uh, is that where you are? Yeah, I'm here in Vegas. Yeah. Right on. So, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because I'm seeing a number of different services offering to buy houses and it's going to be fair. It's going to be transparent. And, you know, there's a couple uh, actual real estate investors that pretty much dominate the airwaves here aside from the, the corporate type branding and look. Um, right. What's the competitive edge? What's the, what's the advantage? Because there's going to be, obviously, some are going to emerge as winners. And we saw one just get kicked out of the business here last week, right? Um, well, what's the plan? Yeah. Um, well, I think over time, the proof is going to be in the pudding. You know, I think the um, a business these days is only as good as its online reputation. And I think um, when you look at some of the bigger names in the business, unfortunately, they've built themselves a pretty poor online reputation. So I think, fortunately, we have a very favorable competitive set in that regard. When we, you know, as we've built our brand and we have over 400 views for 4.7 or 4.8 out of five stars across the site, you know, that really starts becoming an asset for you, you know? So look, I think that's long-term. And then similarly, I think some of these endorsements and these partnerships that we're going to do with big names that have big platforms and are kind of synonymous with trust are going to really help. But in terms of right now, I mean, it's a couple of things. It's, um, it's the product offering, you know, not saying, well, not sounding like everybody else that's like a too good to be true. We'll buy your house for the most money. Trust us, but don't trust us. You know, come to the platform and know that you're going to get dozens of offers. And if that's not indicative of fair competition, then go somewhere else. Um, so I think it's the product offering is really what's helping us in the near term differentiate. And then, you know, there's no doubt about it. We chose to capitalize with venture capital, which is a, it's a different way of doing business that very few people probably on this call have, have really ever thought about doing it. But one of the advantages is on the one hand, you give away a portion of your company, but you get a bunch of money up front and that allows you to do things that are not possible when you're bootstrapping profits like you know I used to be doing back with my dad in Vegas. So that's another just advantage we have is we have money that we can test and iterate and 
you know, design, we found out that creative design is a big deal. Most companies that I see in this category use the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And believe it or not, there's a pretty quick sort of um, audience, not saturation, what's the word I'm looking for, atrophy with creative. And um, just the minute we start changing things up, which we have a creative team and multiple people. So I know that's a long answer, but um, we're trying to differentiate as best we can now while knowing reputation's actually what's going to be differentiated. Right. Um, so when happy to talk about Zillow. Have... Happy to talk hey. about Zillow if you're at all interested. I don't know what your take on that. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that in a sec. Um, yeah. But uh, when a seller comes to you and they decide they want to uh, take this on and give this a shot, and one thing that really caught my attention, you said earlier that you actually vet the inventory. So what does that process look like when a seller reaches out to you before and what happens in between before they end up on the platform? Yeah, so the, the sorts of things we're doing is, um, you know, we – we do believe that for the types of homes that we're serving, that algorithmic underwriting will never work. I've believed that since the day one that I heard about Open Door and everybody else. Right. Um, could it work for a subset of tracked homes in Vegas or Phoenix? Yeah, sure, maybe. Um, but is it going to work for the types of deals that we all find value in? Absolutely not. So we don't try to, you know, we don't try to give you an automatic offer or some range on the site. That's just never what we're going to do. It doesn't seem to me that that's the right way. So we visit the home before we make any expectation, right? Like, and again, like a lot of us probably on the call do, we visit the home and we tell it, you know, we educate the seller about our process and what it means to sign an agreement with our marketplace and give us a shot to auction off their property. And then if they agree, um, then we go to work with doing a Matterport. We do floor plans. We invite third-party inspectors over that we vetted to do all the inspections of the major systems. There's a pool. There's always a pool inspection. There's a septic. There's a septic, et cetera. The things that I wish I would have had buying from the courthouse, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, all the interior photos and videos, but then also all of the observations from the main systems by a professional. So we go through a few-day process, kind of getting out of that already. Then we put it on the marketplace. As, in, as offers start coming in, we have a portal for the seller and they're, they're able to actually see that real time. You know, sort of like you're, you know, if you're on eBay and you're, you're auctioning things off, you kind of get to see what's going on. So that, that's a seller experience. We never make the direct connection between a seller and the property investor. We always manage both, you know, we manage the experience for both so that wires can't get crossed, you know. So, um, so the seller never has to deal directly with the investor nor the investor with the seller. It's always just Sunday. Um, and then as soon as they've chosen uh, which whichever offer they want to go with, which investor they want, then we just start ushering it to close. We open escrow. We manage the deposit process. I mean, everything's pretty standard from there. The only thing that's not is that that cash advance. You know, so you know we'll take the risk on ten thousand dollars to make sure that they have some ability to rent a U-Haul. Or um, actually, we we recently just had a story of somebody had a broken down F one fifty that they were going to use to pull their trailer to move. And they, they didn't know what to do. They'd been working on the F-150 in their uh, driveway. And then so they used 9,000 to the 10 to buy a new F-150. So that's one, another piece that's a little different about our process. But that's kind of what a seller experiences. Got it. Yep. So the property appears on the, uh, on the platform. Yeah. And then it opens up, in your words, kind of like an eBay type environment to where investors can go and look, right? And they start bidding and you stay in between. So you go out and visit the home. So are you a national company? We are in 23 cities. Yeah. And you know, mostly the major kind of NFL cities, if you will, not always, but you know, mostly the bigger ones kind of laying down hubs and then starting to spoke out around it. And you have representatives in each city to go out and view the properties in. We do. Yeah. And they're employees, you know, they're not 1099 contractors from some inspection company. I mean, the inspectors are our third party, but 
our market experts is what we call them. They're the ones visiting the home. They're our employees. And then as an investor on the platform, you get assigned an investor advisor. They're all local to your market. They Mm -hmm. all likely have been very large investors in your market. Like many of them have done hundreds and hundreds of transactions themselves and then wanted to do things a little differently and joined, joined Sunday. From an investor experience, once that listing goes up, there's a couple of kind of cool things. A seller can accept an offer at any time. They don't have to wait for the auction to end. So that's always something to keep in mind is the sooner you can offer, the better. The other thing though, is we just released uh, what's called uh, real-time feedback. So when you make an offer right now on a property on Sunday, you'll instantly know if you're the highest offer or not. You know, If you're willing to pay 300 grand, you may start at 275 and say, oh shoot, I'm not the highest. 280. Oh shoot. 285. Oh wow, I am. Great. Well then here I'm and then the system will let you know if you're you know if you're outbid and you can check your dashboard and so you can kind of play with it a bit like that but one thing we noticed was investors that could only buy one property or two or three at a time but wanted that that were interested in more than that on Sunday were having a hard time knowing you know okay I made bids on two but there's another two over here can you just tell me if I'm going to win these or not because these other ones might expire before these ones do and then I'll have lost out on opportunity so we introduced that real time. There's so much cool opportunity for an auction environment. We're just in the early innings. So we're going to have so many cool features come out. Great. So that was, that was kind of my question. And kind of, you touched on it as far as what's, you know, we now kind of, I got a good picture of what the experience is for the seller. So now when the buyer comes in, they're going to come in and any sort of vetting on the buyers at all, do they have to have cash? Do they have to pre-qualify for financing? How does that work? Yeah, we, so they don't have to pre-qualify for financing, but they do have to validate um, they go through a number of steps to validate identity. So there's email validation, uh, phone validation, um, and then there's ex- an experience validation process that we do in the background on the LLC name. Um, mm-hmm. Now it's, there, there are exceptions, but they're manual and you have to talk to somebody if you're not an investor who can validate experience through entity names. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's kind of the, that's the process. Now, we don't currently offer financing, but we will very soon. And that'll be a fun process because you know, it's, it's exciting to go to a place now that has consistent, steady, vetted inventory. It's, it's another to then say, well, well, I still have to go coordinate with my lender who, who wants to get access to the property, who wants to, well, you guys have already had access. Can you just give me the loan? And the answer is, you know, very soon going to be yes. So you don't have to coordinate with anybody else. It's win the property. Hopefully you're already qualified. If not qualify, know that, know exactly what kind of financing you're get you're getting. And then know that financing will never be your delay. You know, one thing we've, so over 50% of all of the delays in our closings are the, the hard money or private lender. Mm-hmm. It's not the investor. It's not the seller. It's the lender. So like we want to take that uncertainty out of the equation for customers and just offer financing. So we'll do that for insurance and all sorts of other things in the future too. Great. So when coming in, so every buyer, do they have to go through this process? They do. Okay. So it's not just open to the public with regard to no, that- you're competing against the whole country. No, no, definitely not. You got to go through the process. And, and, you know, in certain markets, we very much gated it because, you know, in Atlanta where we'll service 60 to 80 properties or more a month, um, you know, where we have a thousand or more investors, at some point you don't need more investors. And actually it's dilutive to everybody's experience to have more. So San Diego is another good example where we just have more investors than we need. So you may get waitlisted in some markets, but we've entered of the 23 we're in, we've entered 19 of those this year. You know, we spent two and a half years just getting four right, and now we're in. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'd say there there will be a gate at some point. There'll always be a gate. You have to qualify. And at some point, we'll say, look, the line's too long because we don't want a bunch of people making offers and never winning. So we kind of got to balance these things. 
Mm-hmm. So it really is a, a, a true, you know, off-market experience for the seller and an actual off-market experience for the, the buyer as well. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm seeing that. Good. All right. So what's the, um, do you have any sort of stats on what's average days on market or days on off market? We run all of the homes are on a five day auction. So some of them, and I don't have the stats offhand, um, the seller agrees to end the auction early because they've gotten a, a, a fine price. I don't know what percentage that is, but you know, there, and then I think it's within a day of the auction ending, there's a decision that's made or a day or two. So, you know, it's usually from when you see a home on the site to when you'll have a decision, it's usually about seven days. And then the process from there, I mean, it can be as fast as 10 days. Um, and it can be, you know, as long some, some sellers want 60 days to move out and get their stuff together, but that's very clearly just, you know, made, that's made clear on the listing, how mm-hmm. long, like when the close of escrow is. So, yeah. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's what we're seeing. Got it. So to sell a property on your website, you have to be the owner on title? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's actually one of the things we, one of the first stages of vetting for the seller is, do you own this thing? You know, we, we don't want to get in a situation where we're dealing with a tenant or a, you know, a sibling of the owner or a daughter. Well, of I was the thinking owner. more of an investor that has a property under contract. Oh, oh, that has a property under contract. No, you. if you're an investor though, that owns actually one of the uh, probably... I won't definitely won't say lion share, but like, I don't know, a meaningful double digit percentage of our sellers are landlords who are just tired of owning that home. But if it's a sort of like a, a wholesale situation, we we haven't we don't allow that. But if you bought the property recently and you decided, I just don't want to renovate it, maybe another investor could take it. You you absolutely can contact Sunday and sell that property with us. Okay, so maybe it wasn't a wholesaler assignment, but any room for say. Uh, double uh, or like using transactional funding and doing a double close, anything like that? No, not at the moment. We want to kind of keep it to the investors that originally really did want to own the home and paid what they thought was a fair price to the seller. And then if later they realized, you know, hey, I too many projects, my contractor called me or I had a liquidity crisis that I needed, that we can, they can still sell the home. But we, we don't want really want to be a place where you could buy the home for artificially a low price and then quickly make a rip. So we're trying to kind of combat against that a little bit. Sweet. Okay. Yeah. Just checking because I, I just know who the audience is. So I wanted to see like where they can get in and, and how they can benefit. So it's primarily yeah. as an investor looking for a deal, whether that's going to be a fix and flip or a buy and hold, right? Absolutely. That's right. Perfect. And if they wanted to do that, they would go just go to sunday.com. And I think there's a little investor tab and they start the process of applying there. There is. Yeah, exactly. Sunday.com. There's an investor tab. You can go to sunday.com forward slash investor and, uh, you know, you can you can sign up. Most people, all the validation is done behind the scenes through APIs that we have with some data providers. Most people, you're able to sign up, be fully validated, and then get access to the site. A fraction of people, you'll need to talk to an investor advisor before. But um, but yeah, we're in 23 cities all across the country and uh, opening more every month. So we'd uh, we'd love to have your listeners sign up and give us a shot. Great, perfect. All right. So before I let you go, let's. Um, I I've been kind of resting and taking it really easy and been very lazy the last five or six weeks. But I couldn't help but see the, the headlines over and over and over again with the Zillow issue and uh, how they stopped doing this or doing their, their instant buying. I don't know. Can you kind of shed a light on what actually happened there and then uh, how you are going to avoid their mistakes? Yeah. So I'm sure all the listeners know Zillow offers was an iBuyer. So they'd 
promise to buy your home for a, a price. And um, so they, they weren't like Sunday in the sense that we're a marketplace. You know, I think they are, here's my take on iBuying and then I'll comment on Zillow specifically. We all know that there's three ways to make money fixing flipping homes. One is instant appreciation. You buy the home for less than it's worth. Mm-hmm. That's their, ver- the iBuyers, that's their fee, right? Their seven to 12% fee. Then there's the second, which is forced appreciation. This is you put a dollar in in re- renovation, you get a dollar and a half, two, three out. Mm-hmm. That's what we all specialize in. Um, and then there's market appreciation. The market does the heavy lifting and it's worth more when you sell it than, than it was when you bought it. Those are the three. iBuying takes that second one and basically removes it, right? They do little to no work. They're trying to buy homes that are fairly market ready and they're just trying to create a market, a market making function or a liquidity function for sellers that already could sell with a realtor on the MLS. Got it. So in that sense, we deal with a different category of inventory. But what I think about the iBuying model is when you remove that second component, you're left with two. Right now, we've been in the, the most successful bull market any of us have probably ever lived through in real estate, even you know the run-up to, to the last crisis, frankly, yep. the 20% you know, year-to-date appreciation. It's been ridiculous. So here's what happens is HPA goes through the roof. These iBuyers can justify a slightly lower fee. So we've seen them go from you know, nine to seven to six to five, and they're still in 12 in some markets. But, but what happens when that starts slowing slash going flat slash going down? The fee they charge has to go up. And oh, by the way, and I'm sure we, most of us know this, they still aren't making money on every home that they're buying. They're still underwater. Even the best ones are best, if you want to categorize them like that, open door mm-hmm. offer pads, still losing money. So I've always been dubious of the model from day one, because when you remove the forced appreciation piece, you have, you have a little bit left. Market appreciation is very hard to, to, to dictate. And then this fee is just at some point going to have to go so high there, no seller is going to see the value. in it. So I think... Um, as scary as iBuying, I know has been to a lot of us, the prospect of being com- competed with, with you know, venture capital and all these loss-making businesses and all this. I think that thesis on buying the asset is coming home to roost that you know, it's going to be really hard to buy the home and create a market with homes that don't need work. For all of us, here's why I never see an iBuyer stepping into our business, homes that need work, is because it is impossible to predict what the right level of renovation is to get the best ROI, et cetera. No national company is ever going to across the country be able to decide that on every single city. That's our advantage. We get to decide how much is a home, a cul-de-sac worth, a partial ocean view, how much is a fourth bedroom worth, a third bathroom, an ADU. That's what we know as investors in San Diego specifically or in LA specifically, maybe a region, but try to try to know that nationally, good freaking luck. So I know an iBuyer is never going to work in the 13% of homes that trade to investors every year. iBuyers are never going to work in that category. Um, so I think that's where a marketplace thrives is when there's subjective inputs to pricing. The marketplace says, well, then we need a lot of people to tell us what those inputs should be. And somebody may say $40,000 for this deal, and then it's going to appreciate 6% you know, in the next six months. Somebody may say, no, I need to put an 80, but it's actually going to appreciate 13%. And, and the marketplace allows us to sort of find that highest willingness to pay, and it'll never be an institutional buyer, at least on the assets that we specialize in. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Zillow, dude, Zillow just, they, they turned a marketing tool, right? A marketing ploy, Zestimate, mm-hmm. into a fundamental piece of a asset-heavy, low-margin business, and they blew it. I mean, yeah. the incentive for the Zestimate as a marketing tool was overestimate the value of a home. 100%, yep. right? Everybody knew it. Right, we always we always deal with homeowners who are like, "Well, my estimate says," and we're like, "Well, estimate's not right." So you deploy that as the 
the model to the single most important assumption in fix and flipping, what's the home going to be worth? And you're screwed. And then you go too fast. And, you know, we saw the article about the operation catch up, right? Which was catching up with open door. And right. you start, you start doing, making missteps and you know, hiring wrong people and overpaying for homes. So. Got it. Plus you've also got the, uh, the experience as a real estate investor in the background. And I think that's invaluable. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. Well, thanks. Yeah. That's, it's it, the, the one category of, of businesses that I think venture has been done really poorly with is real estate because it requires a intimate understanding of transaction level details and incumbents. Like why are things the way they are in fix and flip? Why is it highly fragmented? Why are local players better than national players? If you haven't been doing the business, good luck. You know, you're going to build the wrong thing. So, yep, for sure. Well, super Josh, it was a pleasure. I'm, I'm much more clear about what you do and and, and what you bring to the marketplace. So congrats on what you've built. And I see really great things ahead for you. What, um, what are you most excited about in the future? Frankly, I'm most excited about some of the, the new tools and services that we're going to bring to the property investors. You know, we standing up the brand and the targeting and the messaging and channels, we, we spent a lot of time focusing on how to find sellers. I got to, you know, I got to mm-hmm. be honest. And that's why when you go on the marketplace, we all like, do. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we all do. But, you know, since we have to really be good for both, it's, it hasn't been until the last six or nine months where we've really started, you know, layering in better, a better experience for investors. Things that, you know, like the real-time feedback I just described that we recently came out with, we're going to come out with so many cool things like that, but bringing a better lending solution, a cheaper, easier to coordinate, more cost, you know, just less brain damage, bringing in like, like insurance products that are tailor-made that aren't, you know, built by, you know, the national insurer who just decided they wanted a property investor product. Um, I, I believe there's a different title insurance product that needs to be built for investors. There's a different risk profile with a quick flip than there is with a you know seven to ten year average homeowner hold in the property insurance business. Uh, sorry, the title insurance business. Well, we want to create that. The last thing I'll say is we don't all need properties every day. We don't need loans every day. What we need is education, insights, and you know you'll see us start focusing more and more on that. Where you come to Sunday as a daily habit, not to look at the inventory. Sure, that's great, but to like courses and curriculums and how do I get better and what's the market doing and that sort of thing. So we don't offer any of that today. And, you know, that's a, that's a big miss and we're going to, we're going to step it up on that. Perfect. Yeah. What's the saying? There, there's no bad investments, just uneducated investors. Yeah, that's right. Right. <laughs> well, great. Josh has been a pleasure and uh, let's stay in touch. righty. All right. Cool, Matt. Uh, really appreciate you having me on the show. You bet. You bet. Yeah, if so you want to learn more about Sunday.com, go to Sunday.com. It, that's S-U-N-D-A-E.com. And uh, there's an opportunity there for you if you're looking to sell your house off market. And there's also an opportunity for you to buy investment properties, either to fix and flip or to hold as income properties. Thanks for sitting tight while we pay our light bill. We'll be back right after this. Hope is not a financial strategy. Let's get back to work. We're going to talk today about condemned houses and how to buy them. Because according to the most recent figures, there are millions of vacant homes in the United States. So this is a little bit out of my expertise. I was just thinking about this. I can't believe out of the uh, thousands of properties that I've purchased over the last decade, I have never bought a condemned house. And so what I did is I invited my buddy who buys condemned houses regularly, and I'm going to pull out from him all of his secrets. So please help me welcome to the show, the family-oriented entrepreneur, Mr. Jamel Gibbs. Jamel, welcome to the show. What's up, man? How are you? 
Good, good. You're looking good. You staying in the gym? I have a gym right on the other side of this wall. <laughs> you just got done is what you're saying. <laughs> Very good. Well, good to see you again. And, uh, you know, I love your YouTube channel. I love what you've been doing lately. Production is really high, buddy. So you're doing a good job over there. Yeah, man. I Sharing appreciate that, bro. It's you a bet, lot of hard bet. work. I it is. Know. No, shoot. I've got one of those channels, too. And I saw yeah. what you're doing. I was like, oh, gosh, he's a, I got to step my game up. So you're doing good. Just real quickly before we get into condemned houses and how to buy them, what's your impression of the housing market at the moment? Uh, I think buyers are paying more than what they should, but I think the market was due for something like this. And I'm excited about the market, to be honest, man. I think there's still a ton of deals out here to, to be found. Mm -hmm. um, there's still a lot of money to be made. And I think if you're not scared, you can make a lot of money as well. For sure. For sure. Well, where do, where do you think? So that's what it is right now. Where do you think it's going? It's hard to say, man. I mean, we really don't have a crystal ball, but to you don't have one of those, you, huh? I thought you had one of those. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, man, I think, uh, I think it's going to continue. It, it, it depends on what happens. What is it? January, February, they're supposed to be raising the mortgage rates or something like that. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's really going to affect it, it may slow things down a little bit, but I don't think there's going to be a crash or anything like that. I think it's, it, you know, it's just going to continue to, Values of homes are going to continue to go up. Yeah. But, uh, you know, that's all speculation at this point. Right. So. But it almost isn't, to tell you yeah. the truth. I mean, if you talk about a crystal ball, if you just kind of look at history any part of the economy, when you're looking at supply and demand, mm -hmm. we got more people than we got houses and we're not building the houses fast enough. True. Very and, true. Uh, and really, like what you were mentioning, the interest rates is probably the only thing that could stop it from appreciating. I don't think that's going to stop it because... I mean, it depends on what the interest rates are, but mm -hmm. I think the values of the homes are going to continue to rise over time. I think yeah. we're we're in for this thing for at least a couple more years, easy, right? And uh, well, the, the National Association of Realtors just came out with a, a study, and they said we are so far behind in the typical number of houses that we build each year. Like we're not even close to what we were building in 2004, 2005, 2006 before the big crash. We're not even close to that. Mm. We'd have to get to that level and a little bit above it and maintain that for a whole decade just to normalize the market. <laughs> that's that's insane, man. So, I mean, it obviously, is. you know, my personal residence went up, what, 40% mm -hmm. over the last year. It's going to continue to go up. I think it's a great time. Like I just bought a rental property, what, three weeks ago? Mm -hmm. And right around the corner from a condemned house that I'm about to purchase, but I bought that probably three weeks ago. I got a future value appraisal on that before I bought it back in October. Mm -hmm. um, it already went up. That's right. right. I mean, it's crazy, man. I, I'm loving <laughs> it. I'm loving it. Yeah. No, I mean, if, if you own houses, if you own property, it's a great, it's a great situation. If you're trying to get that first one as, as a, I guess, a, a, a retail buyer looking for your home, but, that could be a little bit of a struggle. But you know what? You really just have to make the adjustments according to the market. You know, so normally, like this house that I just bought as a rental, I bought $75,000 house. Okay. Numbers are different, you know, in California and stuff like mm -hmm. that, obviously in New York. But um, bought the house for, well, actually, I bought it for $73,000 and I got a $120,000 appraisal on it. If you'd have looked at that house two years ago, I probably would have paid 40 grand for it. Right. So you just make the adjustments. That's all you're doing. You're adjusting according to what's happening in the market and just making educated, educated decisions mm -hmm. uh, based off of 
what recently happened in the market. Because right. if you if you go if you base your numbers off of let's say Zillow, for example, <laughs> right. you, you might be priced out of the market, you won't get any deals. But mm-hmm. if you have good data, which is real estate investing is all about data, right? Yep. If you if you have good data and you know what's happening in the market, you can make a ton of money. I bought that house at what is that, sixty cents on a dollar minus repairs. Mm-hmm. You know, the house only needed ten grand in work. But the point is, there's still a ton of money to be made as long as you make the adjustments according to what's happening in the market right now. For sure. Um, for sure. You know, and was, when you say that, there's a difference between what happens on market and what happens off market. Right. You know, oh, yeah. the, uh, the, the media and you're always going to be hearing about on market stuff. Right. We, we deal very regular, very not very regularly in on market. We're always looking for off market. And what's happening there is a very different thing that's happening than on market. And mm-hmm. us as real estate investors, we're looking for that, those off market opportunities. You know, we're looking for distress and we're going to talk about, uh, you know, the properties themselves being distressed, but we're also looking about uh, financial distress and personal distress of the owners of those properties. Yep. And, uh, you know, as we're coming through starting, I guess, with where we kind of finishing maybe our second year of pandemicness, right? There's a lot of distress out there right now, and yeah. a lot of the people under distress own property, and and they're in a situation where money is going to help them out of that distress, and they're going to start turning to their assets and to for that financial relief. And a lot of those that a lot of them are going to be turned into those houses. So, yeah, of, you're absolutely a lot right. Of good stuff coming, a lot of good stuff, man. I can't <laughs> wait. So, I'm doing it. <laughs> right, very good. Rubbing my hands together. Man. Yeah, I mean. If you are going to pick a business to be in, you want to pick in a business where the supply and demand is so off balance and you are in control of the supply. There's not a better, more stable business to be in. And if what I, that report said is true, if that's going to be the situation for at least the next 10 years, yep. then, uh, boy, financial freedom for everybody that gets involved, right? Absolutely, man. Can't, for sure. I can't wait. And uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to this conversation, brother. Yeah, so let's get into it. What we're actually here to talk about. We're going to talk about condemned houses, and I wrote some questions down here. So let's just start with this. What is a condemned house? Well, it really all depends on how you look at it. So a lot of people have uh, different definitions of what condemned real estate is. But and when you think about a condemned house, you know what really comes to mind? A house is boarded up, needs to be knocked down, a lot of work needed, but it's not necessarily true all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, I can find a house where, you know, there were taxes owed on the house and the owner just didn't pay them. And the the, uh, municipality took over the property and now the property is condemned. Mm -hmm. Right. I can find a house that had code violations and just weren't, you know, the owner wasn't paying on the code violations and the municipality takes back the house and now the house is condemned. So Mm -hmm. you can have. Uh, there's two layers of distress, right? You have physical distress where the property actually needs some work. And then you have financial distress, which is basically exactly what we just explained, where you have a property owner that they're just not paying their bills or they're just not taking care of it. You can also have interchangeable, interchangeable um, distress as well, where you have a property owner that's getting code violations because the property needs some work and they're just not paying the bills either. So that's mm-hmm. just, we call that uh, stacking, right? 
So um, there's multiple layers of distress, which can lead into a condemned, a property being condemned at the end of the day. But as soon as the municipality takes back the houses, um, if they don't pay the, the bill within a certain period of time, they deem it as condemned. Eventually, they'll probably knock it down or try to sell it. Got it. So that's kind of what I was kind of made my lead into the next question. What happens when a house is condemned? And you kind of probably already explained it, but Mm -hmm. you know, what's that process look like for when and what does that mean for the actual owner? Yeah. So basically all it means is the, the, the property owner has a certain amount of time. If the property is condemned, the property owner has a certain amount of time to catch up whatever payments in order to get the house back. It's kind of like a foreclosure, Mm -hmm. but the difference is the city is taking the property and obviously it's going to differ based on the municipality as well. But ultimately at the end of the day, it's kind of like a foreclosure process. The difference is the city is taking the property back. And then once they take it back, um, you do have a a certain period of time. They call it a redemption period in Mm -hmm. foreclosure real estate. I'm going to call it a redemption period because I don't honestly don't know what it's called when the Mm -hmm. municipality takes it back. Right. But, um, you have a period of time to, to catch up. If not, they'll eventually knock the property down or keep it or whatever. Okay. So almost like maybe like how maybe a tax lien type thing works, right? You've got right. a certain period of time and then eventually they're going to come in and they're just going to take it from you. Yeah, pretty right? much. So now the city owns the house. Yeah. And if your property is, let's say that you have an inspector come out of property mm-hmm. and you, there's a, a huge hole in a living room floor, and a property is not livable, they're going to take it back. Uh, mm-hmm. they, well, not take it back, but they're going to take it from you. Or if you can show that you're making the effort to make the repairs or you can show a contractor's estimate or something like that, they'll give you a period of time in order to be able to get it done. So, it. When some, well, I'm not going to jump ahead, but I was going to jump into someone. When someone like me comes around and I'm contacting the city in order to see what they have, on, they, they literally have a list of these properties and they'll let me pick and choose. And as long as they can get, they can re- redeem the amount that they have invested into it, mm-hmm. I can get a great deal. Great. So that, that was leading into my next question. You said you weren't going to jump, but you did anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, so that's my, is that the only way to find condemned houses? How do you find the condemned houses? I usually contact the city. To me, the best way to do it is to do driving for dollars for a couple of days, right? Mm-hmm go to areas where you're probably going to find condemned houses, right? Which is, they can be anywhere really. Mm. But then once you find a property that says, you know, uh, condemned on it, they'll usually have a sign or something on a door or whatever the case may be. Right. As soon as you find that one property, there's usually an officer well, an inspector that's working that entire area. So, I actually did a video on this where I actually called the uh, inspector up and started a conversation with that particular inspector for that area. Mm -hmm. Right. And there's going to be different inspectors for different areas. So you want to drive different areas, but the most part is for the most part, what you want to do is find out who's in charge of inspecting properties in that area and get on their good side so that they can start uh, sending you some leads. Right. It's all about relationships still. That's it, man. So I'd imagine that you're not the only person that knows that they can just go into the city and ask them for a list of condemned houses, right? 
I have no idea. (laughs) I'll tell you this. A lot of people don't know about it. Mm -hmm. I think the harder it is to get a lead, the harder it is to get a deal, the more money you're going to make and the easier it is for somebody like me who's willing to put in a little more work. Right. Actually dig into it. Uh, I'm going to be able to get more consistent lead flow and deal. Less competition is going to be. Exactly. Yeah, the, the more difficult it is. I always thought about that, too. Absolutely. Like if it's really easy, then everybody would be doing it. Yep. Um, so it's essentially, is it first come, first serve? Or is it the relationship? Or is it the I'll money? Be honest. Usually when, I, when I'm putting in an offer in my local area, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about this area here. When I put in an offer, I usually don't have any competition. Mm-hmm. Again, it, it goes with the, uh, the old saying that, you know, the less competition you have, the better position you're in. So for, sure. for me, I personally, I don't usually have a lot of competition at all. You know, if the city is asking for a certain amount, if it falls within my numbers, I'm going to buy it. I'm not even going to have another buyer lined up to bid against me. So All right. So to find these properties, you can go down to the city. You can drive for dollars. Um, are there ways to pull like marketing lists or anything like that? Are there sources for that? Yeah, you can pull these leads uh, based off of, you know, software and stuff that you use. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I don't want to give any shameless plugs or anything like that. So I'm not going to, but, um, oh, please be shameless. Well, <laughs> this is a shameless show. <laughs> <laughs> like I have a, a, a software and a, and a partnership with a list company mm-hmm. and within my software, I usually pull them. But to me, the best way to find the leads is way before the list companies will even have them. So if you mm-hmm. go direct to the source again, driving for dollars. So, so here, here's a, a really good way to use your time better and find really good deals. So if you have an appointment to go see another house or for example, you know, I drove that area because I have a rental property that we're renovating right now to uh, get rented out, mm-hmm. drive the area. So if you have an appointment with a seller arrive, let's say 15 minutes before in the area, drive the area and then do another drive around 15 minutes after on some other streets. That's good use of your time. I'm not gonna yes. sit. I'm not gonna use a Saturday morning to drive around for two and three hours hoping to find something. I'm gonna use the time where I'm actually driving to a seller's appointment to see a property to get a contract and hopefully pick up another property while I'm there. So to me, that's better use of your time. Sure. Than wishful or hopeful thinking with driving for dollars randomly. Right. Right. So. Now that you found the house and you said when you submit an offer, who are you actually submitting the offer to? So you're going to talk to the inspector and um, there can be different people, but you're going to talk to the inspector. Uh, you're going to tell them what, what you want to offer on the property. And then once you tell them what you want to offer, you know, you'll submit the agreement and um, take it from there. It's just a normal closing process where you go through an attorney. Well, in my state, we go through an attorney, but in other states, you might go through a title company. So you're submitting the offer to not to the inspector, like who's actually on title, who owns it, who has the decision making power. So, yeah, the inspector will basically be your go to point and they're going to get you in contact with whoever is in charge of like whatever department is in charge of it. Usually okay. for me, I'm talking to the inspector mm-hmm. and then they're going to get you in charge. They're going to get you in contact with whoever is in charge of taking. Right. So normally it's going to be an attorney that's going to uh, take over from there. So can it be different properties have different types of people or different departments in charge? Yeah. I mean, it just depends on the area, the municipality. So this is something that 
you know, when I was in Pennsylvania, it was done differently. And I, it was a little more difficult in Pennsylvania mm-hmm. when I lived there. I've been here for, uh, what is this, uh, for seven years now. It's going to be eight years I've been here in North Carolina. North Carolina? Yeah, so here it's just done differently. So what you got to do is figure out how it works in your area. Uh, I would, again, start with the person that's putting the liens on the property and taking them back and then follow that rabbit hole from there. Right. So rabbit hole is probably a bad way to, to phrase that, but it's, it's true. You're going you're, right. to you have to dig to figure out who's doing what in your area and then just get in contact with the right people so that you can get the properties that that you need. Mm-hmm. OK, so I was watching one of your videos and I've seen this in, in, in neighborhoods as well, where there'll mm-hmm. be like a, a notice. Sorry, man, I'm just fucking my my uh, <laughs> laptop. Oh, you run out of battery. Yeah, I forgot to plug it in. I'm sorry. No worries. We didn't lose yet. That's good. So as I saw in your video and, I, and I've actually seen this it, myself where there's a notice posted on like the door on the property somewhere. Mm-hmm. If you were to see one of those, what type of information is useful there? Is the inspector's name on there? Like, how do we yep. find the inspector? So I'll give you an example. I actually took a picture of, I don't know if you're going to be able to see this or not, but when I did that video just a few weeks ago, as a matter of fact, I randomly shot a YouTube short and I said, hey, you know, if you see any of these properties, yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. And I got some really good buzz on it. So I said, I might as well shoot a whole video on it. And when I took that picture, if I could find it, the first thing I noticed was the, the inspector's name and contact phone number. That's mm-hmm. all I really wanted. I wanted the inspector's name and contact phone number. So now I have numbers even there. a point of reference, right? I, oh, I can fantastic. contact somebody. Okay. To get more information to follow that rabbit hole. And usually it's the inspector anyway. So um, if I can, I'm not sure if I can pull it up or not. It's probably going to take me forever to pull it up. But the whole thing is usually when you see condemned, property condemned, or let's say a yellow or pink slip on the door, mm-hmm. uh, usually the yellow slip and the pink slip is probably going to be the water company. They're going to shut the water off or it's going to be the codes office. Right. But then the next person that's going to come around after a period of time, it takes months. Right. The next person, because they give you some time Mm -hmm. uh, to be fair, the next person that's going to come around is going to be that inspector. And once they inspect the property, it's going to be deemed condemned. Uh, I'll give you an example. I I actually shot that YouTube video in front of this house right here. I'm not sure if you can see that or not. Yeah, um, it's a little blurry, but I can make it out. That you smiling in the front. So that's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's the house in the background. Got it. Yeah. So that house there was actually in decent shape. I looked mm-hmm. in the windows and everything. It wasn't like that house was falling down by any means, by any stretch of the word. Right. I, I could see that the roof probably needed to be replaced. But, you know, other than that, the property, I could have put somebody right into that house with maybe $10,000 worth of work. But right there on the window. That's the property condemned sign, right? So right underneath the word condemn, you have all of the information that you need. You got the person, the inspector's name, as well as their phone number right there. And that's exactly how I contacted this person is uh, inspector is L. Rustin. Mm -hmm. And then he provided their phone number right next to it. Shout out to Rustin. Shout out to Rustin. Check it out. So the date that they first visited this property was... June 30th of uh, 2020 and it was wow. vacant. They uh, 
ordered it to be vacated immediately. So this property has been sitting there for, well, just about a year and a half and it's still condemned. Mm -hmm. So this is on their list. They want to cash out of this thing and it takes people like you and I to contact them and say, hey, I want to purchase that property. What do I need to do? So sat there for a year and a half and, and nobody. Nobody, because nobody nobody's in. looking for it. It's right. not on somebody's list yet. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I don't know how long it takes to get on someone's list. I, I'm not an expert in that regard, but I am an expert in contacting people to, to get them to sell their houses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> so I'll find out. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, thankfully I was able to get in contact with this person and um, take it from there, man. Perfect. So we're we're in negotiation right now. It's been about a month. So. Okay. So it takes a while. It's a little bit more of a timely process then. Yeah, because I mean you gotta remember you're dealing with a, a paid employee right. who works for the city. They're not eager to they're not making a commission on it. So Yeah, they're getting their paycheck either way. They're gonna contact you when they when they get back to you and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But this is a new relationship that I was able to build. And if you know, I'm not sure if it's legal for me to kick back. Well, I don't wanna use the word kickback, but refer I provide a referral fee for 500 bucks. I give them 500 bucks. Mm-hmm. They'll probably send me, send me a whole lot more deals before they even hit the, sure. uh, the condemn list. There's some know. way that you can scratch each other's back, right? Exactly. <laughs> Perfect. Hey, let me buy you a, let me buy you a, a dinner for you and your wife at Ruth Chris or something like that. You know? Yes. <laughs> I'll give you a $500 gift card for Ruth Chris. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm sure. You'll have some change, right? Uh, so, okay. So you, you go ahead and you submit this, property or submit the offer you get the property it's under contract it goes through a traditional close as you were saying through a real estate attorney in your state so what is your typical exit strategy do you have the ability to wholesale the property or do you plan on fixing it uh and then flipping it or is it something you're using as a rental i mean really the sky is the limit with exit strategies um i can do it i I would want to take it down with cash obviously Mm -hmm. i'm not going to assign something like this uh just to stay because if the city sees Hey, this guy just made, you know, 10 grand extra. I just don't want to create any negative, uh, sure. a, a negative vibe with the city. Right. So what I, what I want to do, uh, with these types of deals is double close on them. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, if I decide to, you know, based on the price, I can rehab them. I can take them down and, you know, keep them long term. The thing is you're going to need some type of cash, right. In order to do that. But for someone that's just getting started, with something like this, I would recommend building up your nest egg through wholesaling. So you can find someone to fund the property for, let's say, 500 to 1000 bucks, usually $800 for a transaction funding. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once you, you know, uh, as long as you can show that you have a buyer on the other end, you can go ahead and let's say you, you buy it for 50, you sell it for 70, you pay, you know, $1,500 in closing costs and a, and a difference goes in your pocket. Now you have a little something that you could take uh, and be able to build on, right? And you put a nest egg together and be able to start doing some bigger projects. That's what I would recommend. Something like this, you can't go directly to the seller per mm. se unless you catch them before it's actually condemned. Right, right. That's where you can negotiate some hybrid stuff where, you know, some creative real estate investing, mm-hmm. you know, which is one of my favorite ways of buying properties and yours, Matt. Yep. Right. And, uh, but once it goes to the city or once it goes to a bank, you know, yeah, you, you're gonna lose a lot. Almost all of those options are gone. There's, there's money involved after the fact. That's right. But That's you right. can still wholesale them. Uh, there's plenty of money out there. Uh, mm. If you need money, contact Matt or I. And, uh, 
we'll, we'll fund it, you know, and, and take a fee off the top. Right. That's right. But the whole thing is, you know, you're limited on your options and on the creative side, but the world is your oyster on the wholesale rehab, you know, maybe burr. Um, if you're a fan of the burr strategy, that's, that's mm-hmm. a great way to pick up cheap properties with a ton of equity in them and cash mm-hmm. out. Um, you know, just the world is definitely uh, open to you when it comes to exit strategies. When you pick up a property like this, and I hear the word condemned. I mean, I'm just thinking like a total disaster of a property. Right. Is that always the case or they, they vary significantly? They vary, man. And that, that was kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier today, where you can have a physically distressed property, which is, you know, it's boarded up. It really is a condemned property. You can't live there. Mm-hmm. But then you could have a property where the water bill wasn't paid for two years. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And that can be considered condemned at that point as well, because they're, the, the property owner is getting kicked out. Right. And now the right. city is, is vacated. And once the city t- takes ownership of it, it will nine times out of 10 be considered a condemned property at that point. Mm-hmm. Super. So if someone was listening to you right now and decided, hey, I want to give that a shot also, what would you say are the first three action steps they should take? I mean, first and foremost, man, you got to find the properties, right? So right. how do you find the properties? Drive around some neighborhoods where you're already looking for real estate and just be mindful of condemned signs on houses. Every mm-hmm. single municipality has them. I just showed you an example of what it actually looks like. Chances are it could be different where you're located, but if a property looks vacant, and has signs all over windows and doors, you need to take down that address. Okay. Contact, second step would be to contact the person that's on that particular sign mm-hmm. and start digging to find that rabbit hole. Let them know that you want to purchase this property. You understand it's condemned. Find out if there's a, a date where they're actually going to knock the property down. Mm-hmm. Uh, let them know that you want to save the property. Uh, even if it's not in bad shape, they'll, they'll still knock the property down, mm-hmm. right? So find out if you can save the property. And once you find out if they, if you can save the property, make your offer. Right. right. And the, the key with this is just to be consistent. It takes a little bit of legwork, but less competition means more profit for you at the end of the day. For sure. And, uh, you know, so, okay, so let's recap real quick. The first step is to go ahead and just basically keep your eyes and ears open. I mean, you're driving through your neighborhoods, working in neighborhoods already. It could be when you're taking your kids to school. It could be, you know, you're on your way to the park, wherever, wherever you're doing. Just keep your eyes and ears open for those signs on the properties. Second is once you locate them, step up to the property, read that sign and get the inspector's name and contact information. Right. Is number two. And then number three would be, you know, uh, submit the offer. Submit, submit an offer. Submit an offer. You know, and sometimes you got to be persistent contacting that inspector. That's the hardest part, mm-hmm. really. Uh, but once you're in well, that's contact, the way all marketing is, right, Jamel? Pretty I mean, much follow you up. You gotta man. be consistent and persistent with all that, right? Fortunate right. in the follow up. And a follow up, man. That's right. For sure. So and one thing that's really nice about this strategy is there are there's no marketing expense. Yeah, zero. Right? I mean, you, you're gonna spend a little bit of money on gas, but yep. other than that, you know well, that's a lot these days, so <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, it's, it's four dollars. I couldn't believe because I you know, I have a well, I have to put ninety three in both of my cars. Mm-hmm. And uh, man, that gas here—I've never seen a four-dollar 
I'm not even going to talk about it, man. It's just, it's, it's, it's crazy. Right. You ain't been to California, so that's probably it. Yeah. <laughs> and New York is is north of $5, man. Yeah. They, they hit five bucks in California as well. Yeah. My wife but, is out in Cali right now for a few days with her mom getting mm-hmm. cancer. Well, she's, her mom's getting cancer treatment in LA. Mm. But uh, yeah, the yeah. gas out there is crazy, man. It is. Hopefully, this whole thing's going to turn around here shortly. Yeah. But, uh, Jamel, if someone wanted to get in touch with you, what would be the best way for them to do that? Hey, man. Uh, first off, I appreciate you having me today. I had a lot of fun doing this, man. It was really, really yeah. random. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, if you want to get in contact with me, uh, the best way to do it is on YouTube at Jamel Gibbs. Mm-hmm. And that's the way to do yeah, it. Yeah, and I, I appreciate you coming on the show. It's really funny. Like, the way that we met was kind of random. I, like, I felt like I already knew you. Yeah. And I started talking to you, and I was like, you know what? I don't think I know him. I don't think I've ever met him before. But it just kind of like, all right, we're friends now. And then yeah, it man, just how long has it, It's been at least two years now. Yeah. Since we were at that event in mm-hmm. Tampa. Yeah, it was two years ago. Um, that's right. You and uh, then we, we were in a gym together mm-hmm. uh, in that hotel. I was actually at that hotel at the last event that Matt held. Mm-hmm. Uh, I missed the last one. I was at some, I was uh, under the weather, so I couldn't no make doubt. a trip. But no doubt, man. I'll be there for the next one. You'll be there for the next one? I will. I will. I'm going to try to be consistent because I'm not good at getting out a lot, man. I, I'm a family. I'm a homebody. I like to stay home. Yeah, you I don't have family an family-oriented entrepreneur, as you say in your videos. That's right, man. Family-oriented entrepreneur, man. I like to stay home. I actually work right here in my office at home. The only time I go out is really to take my wife out somewhere or go to the supermarket or something, mm-hmm. or do something with the family. But uh, everything is done virtually, man. Literally everything, my in-house, uh, my, my calls, everything is done virtually through someone either in the States or overseas. And my businesses are, are run 100% virtual, man. So I love it. Except my contractors, my, my stuff that I have going on locally with rehab right. and stuff like that. Let's do this again, and we'll talk about how you've kind of outsourced all this this nasty work that we all have to do as real estate investors. Yeah, man, it took years, but I was able to do it, figure it out, man, and I'm I'm happy. Good. It's been a good five years where I've been pretty steady with it, man. So yeah, Perfect. I'm looking forward to that, brother. All right, we'll come back and we'll, we'll talk about that next time. All right, sounds good. I hope everybody benefited from this information, <laughs> man. I, I know there's going to be a lot more. We we could have dove into a lot more probably, but maybe we'll we'll do that in another another yeah. segment. We'll, we'll, we'll make this a recurring thing. Cool, man. Sound good? I love it, brother. All right, cool. We'll be back with more right after this. Mainstream media is ripping us apart. This is news to bring us together and make some money in the process. The Biden administration announced last week that it is looking to expand reporting requirements on all cash real estate transactions. The announcement came via a U.S. Treasury Department notice seeking public comment on this potential regulation. According to the Biden administration, the aim of this regulation would be to crack down on individuals using the U.S. real estate market to launder money made through illicit activities, which the administration views as a vulnerability in the real estate market. Well, I'll just keep my mouth shut on that one, and you can determine whether that's a valid priority and a good use of resources at the moment for this beautiful country that we live in. Home prices have started to show signs of easing up as the S&P CoreLogic Case-Shiller National Home Price Index rose 19.5% year over year in September, down from 19.8% the previous month. The 10-city composite increased 17.8% year over year in September, down from 
18.6% in the previous month. And the 20-city composite climbed 19.1% year-over-year, down from 19.6% in the previous month. Canned meat is the food trend you've been sleeping on. Spam sales hit a record high for the seventh year in a row, the CEO of Parent Hormel said. And Spider-Man No Way Home hits theaters on Friday. And Tiger Woods will play alongside his son at the PNC Championship on Saturday, the first time he's competed since a brutal car crash 10 months ago. It's not a passing fad, it's the future of money. What happened this week in cryptocurrency? A virtual plot of land in the online world of Decentraland has sold for a record $2.4 million worth of cryptocurrency. The 116-parcel estate, located in the heart of Decentraland's fashion district, was acquired by Metaverse Group, a subsidiary of Tokens.com, a publicly traded company which invests in revenue-generating crypto assets linked to decentralized finance, non-fungible tokens, or NFTs, and Metaverse real estate. And just a heads up, we're going to be talking a lot more about Metaverse real estate in the new year, as it is becoming a very viable form of real estate investing, even if it's not quote-unquote real. An NFT owner made a mistake that cost him hundreds of thousands of dollars this weekend, and it wasn't just going to a private liberal arts school. Max or Max Not on digital marketplace OpenSea meant to list a Bored Ape NFT for 75 Ethereum, roughly $300,000, but accidentally typed 0.75 Ethereum, $3,000 as the price. And before he could correct the problem, it had already been scooped up by a bot. And despite having fallen by nearly 30% since its November all-time high, Bitcoin is in a consolidating bull market and on its way to $100,000, according to a Bloomberg intelligence report. The paper said it is unlikely that Bitcoin's bull run has come to a halt and predicts the fixed supply to sustain increasing prices. And that wraps up the epic show. And if you found this episode valuable, who else do you know that might too? There's a good chance you don't someone else who would. And when their name comes to mind, please share with them and ask them to click the subscribe button when they get here. And I'm going to take great care of them. Alrighty. God loves you. And so do I. Merry Christmas, health, peace, blessings, and success to you. I'm Matt Terrio, living the dream. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.